spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. While your timelines are filled with best of lists of 2017 of various varieties, we're brand new this week, episode 194 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham, wishing you an early Happy New Year. The New Year just a couple of days away now, but we're not done with 2017 yet. Not only am I, gonna, am I finally going to be giving my spoiler-filled thoughts on Star Wars The Last Jedi coming up. Going to talk about Bright from Netflix as well. So you get a double dose of Geek Tamment. As far as an interview this week, our final set of interviews from San Diego Comic Con 2017. Wanted to round out the year talking about Krypton on sci fi. Going to be talking to star Cameron Cuff, a couple of the producers, showrunner as well, to find out what's going to be going on with Krypton right from the source itself. You know that the show's going to be coming in March of 2018, so we're going to get to give you the inside scoop on that. But first, hey, for the final time in 2017, let's find out what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Carlos Magno, and you're listening to the Down and the Nerdy Podcast. For the final time in 2017, we're going to drag out the long box, the tablet, or the laptop. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and you'd think this would be one of those best of lists, right? My favorite comics of 2017. No, no, no. Brand new reviews this week. As a matter of fact, going to start with Back to the Future Tales from the Time Train number one from IDW, which is something I've been looking forward to. Story by Bob Gill, of course, and John Barber. John Barber actually doing the writing on this one as well. Megan Levins with the art. Charlie Kirchhoff does the colors. And Sean Lee on the letters. Now, any Back to the Future fan, myself included, has always wondered what happens with Emmett and Clara and the boys after they take off on that final scene in Back to the Future 3 and leave Marty and Jennifer on the time train What happens? And this is exactly what that story is. Now, I really tried to go into this, not building this up in my head of what I wanted it to be, and tried to be objective here. So just follow me on this. Now, the comic actually starts out, you know we do spoiler-free reviews with comics, so just bear with me as much as you can here. So the story actually starts out a little bit like it's, it's like a scene setter. For anybody that has been reading the Back to the Future ongoing series maybe you're not too familiar with the characters of Jules and Vern you know the boys so this is kind of a setup in these first few pages of this book where you kind of get to know the Brown family you get to know the boys a little bit and there's a couple of references to some earlier Back to the Future comics not really required reading you should be going back to read those anyway not required reading it will tell you where you can go back and find out what they're talking about if you're feeling a little lost I didn't I will say I haven't read every issue of the, of the Back to the Future ongoing, and I wasn't lost, so you'll be good to go. But what the first several pages actually does is it kind of sets the tone for the family dynamic of the Brown family. So at first I was like, really, this is what happens? And then once I realized what was going on, I'm like, okay, so this, this is setting the scene for what's going to be happening later on. And then there's the recreation of the scene. You figured that that was going to be a part of this comic anyway, so that's not really a spoiler. And then you find out where they're going. And I will say this, this is such a Doc Brown choice. I loved it so much 
where they decided to go on their great Brown family vacation. Their first stop is something that is so Emmett Brown. It just made me smile from ear to ear. So for, for Bob and for John to make that choice in this story, perfectly well done because it was so Emmett Brown. You always worry in any sequel situation, if you're a diehard fan, how the characters are going to be treated. And I will say that every character in this book is treated exactly the way that you would want them to be if you're a diehard fan. So this choice just screamed Emmett Brown to me. But what I didn't expect was there is going to be a, you know, the classic, this is too good to be true kind of thing. And you know there's going to be more to this story than meets the eye. And there's a hint to what's going to be happening for, I would say, probably the rest of this arc. And it's just, it's it's so on the nose, I think. It's almost like, how did I not think of this immediately when they landed where they landed? Now, how it's going to be executed, I think it's going to be a key part in the, of the next couple of issues because it is a story that I will say... I should, well, let me just put it this way. It's a subject matter that I think is done a lot in comics and I wish wasn't. And that's not saying that this isn't going to be good in this particular instance because I think it will because it's going to be taken in a different angle. And again, I'm trying to be spoiler free here. When you read this book, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It's a group that gets discussed a lot in comics and is a subject of a lot of storylines. And, and I hope that we don't see that as much in 2018. But in this particular instance, I am very interested because it's going to be a different spin on it. And it's almost like a case of mistaken identity. I'm not giving away too much there, I don't think. So this is definitely a pull for me. I enjoyed the art as well. I thought Megan Levins did a very, very good job with the art. It's very consistent with the rest of the Back to Future comics. So if you've enjoyed the art there... You'll definitely enjoy the art in this series. I love the tone of the whole thing. I love the fact that we get a little bit more of the Brown family. This is definitely not going to be a Marty-heavy story. This is going to be a Doc Brown and the family-heavy story. So what's going to be interesting is how the family reacts to what is eventually going to be in these next couple of issues if the scene is set the way I think it is in this last page. So definitely going to be keeping aboard the time train for Back to the Future in January and find out what's going to be going on in issue two. Taking things in a completely different direction, but still in the future with Top Cow Production and Image Comics is Bonehead Number 1, which is written by Brian Edward Hill. Roard Mercellius does the art. Sakti Yuano does the colors. And Imam Iko and Jaka Adi do the letters. If I butchered anybody's name there... I do apologize. It's kind of my thing. If you've never listened to the show before, I, n- I never pronounce names right. So I'm going to roll into the story now. This is a futuristic story, and I will say this without spoiling anything, is that if you were somebody who's worried that drones are going to be taking over our future and be everywhere at some point, if that freaks you out, this book's going to freak you out because there's drones everywhere in this particular future story. Now, this is a, if you're like parkour, if you don't know what parkour is, Google it. I'm not going to explain uh, every little aspect of parkour. But if you're a parkour fan, you are going to love this book because it is parkour, parkour, hardcore. I will say that right now. And I just enjoyed the thrill ride. This was a big thrill ride from start to finish. Let's just say, you know, there's YouTubers, there's Twitch streamers. And this is one of those instances where that's, that doesn't change in the future. So... 
a stunt is being performed, a parkour stunt is being performed. I'm not going to give away the details of it, but it is one of the coolest things. And this was, it's almost like any parkour's dream because, you know, some parkour participants can be kind of nuts. Let's just face facts here. If you are somebody who does parkour, there are certain degrees of difficulty in a lot of these stunts. And this one is right near the top and one of the most dangerous that you'd see. What you also get to see is, and this is something that again is done a lot in comics, is a futuristic police force that is a part of this. And and I will say it's very interesting the way that that is executed. And I did get a little bit of a Judge Dredd vibe when I saw the gladiators is what they call their police. When I, I got, I definitely got a little bit of a Judge Dread vibe, but in a different color scheme and in a totally different tone. I will say that too, by the way. But the look, I definitely got a little bit of a Judge Dread vibe, and that's not a knock, by the way. But in also in this futuristic society, you're also dealing with a lot of gang activity, and this book does a really good job of breaking down the sectors and where you are and what the threat level is in a particular location. I love that because it makes me feel like the the bonehead is the actual helmet that they're wearing. And it's almost like a, a Google Glass type thing where it gives you all this information in your helmet and you can see it in your visor sort of deal. So I, I love that you get that information as a reader. It almost feels like you are a part of what's going on and letting you know where everything is. You're, you're world building here and you have to let the reader know where they are and what the situation is. And this book doesn't make you guess at it. It just puts it right there in front of your face like you have a bonehead helmet on yourself. And I love that. And this, actually the parkour character, we just know as 56. That's kind of all we know. And that's all we really need to know because 56 is kind of like snake eyes in this book. You know, doesn't say a lot. But uh, definitely executes a nice flow of parkour action. And the art in this book is absolutely stunning from everyone involved. And actually having two letters on this book makes perfect sense. And you'll understand why when you're reading it, why there needed to be two letters. And the letters actually, both of them really step up in this issue because there's there's kind of emojis involved here as well. It's not just a simple lettering of, of a regular comic that you would see. There's a whole lot going on here, letters-wise. So having two letters on this book completely makes sense. And if a, if a letterer can shine in a book, it's in this one. Both Imam and Jaka do a very, very good job with the lettering. It's just a vibrant book. You feel alive when you're reading this book, actually. It was just a fun thrill ride. So for that reason... I'm going to put this one in the poll box as well. Another poll for me with Bonehead number one from Top Cow. I really can't wait to see where the adventure goes next, especially the way that the book ended. And kind of a little bit of a tense moment, but maybe not. And maybe things are not exactly what you think they are. Maybe it's not all cut and dry when you see the end of this book. It's going to do it for what we're reading up next. You've been waiting for it. Finally hear my spoiler-filled thoughts on star wars the last jedi are next on the down and nerdy podcast hello this is tom ellis from lucifer on fox and you are listening to the down and nerdy podcast well i think i've made you wait long enough time for my spoiler filled review of star wars the last jedi i know i know i've made you wait with the holiday and everything but i wanted to make sure 
that I could give you a spoiler-filled review and that you guys have seen it because, you know, I wanted to give you a little bit. It took me a little bit to see it, too. You know, got sick over the holidays and had to deal with that, but that's neither here nor there. So let's get to this spoiler-filled from here on out on Star Wars The Last Jedi. And I'm not going to go into, again, not every little detail. I want to hit on some certain things. I don't need to tell you the plot. It's Star Wars, okay? You've either seen it or know what the plot is, so I'm not going to go into every little grand detail about what the plot is. So I'm just going to dive into what I liked, what I didn't like. I'm going to start out by saying this was not a perfect movie by any stretch, but you know, there are very few that are. So here's something that I want to start off with right away. I'm going to jump right into the whole Luke Skywalker thing. I know that there are childhoods that were ruined over this whole thing, but you know what? Let's just call it what it is okay if you've been a star wars fan and you really pay attention to the movies and and i love luke skywalker i've always loved luke skywalker as a character i was really looking forward to mark hamill bringing the character back to life in the last jedi and where they were going to go but i really liked cranky old man luke i really really did and and i don't know why he was such a dick to ray but then you kind of understand it and then you find out the decision that he made okay where he was going to kill kylo to keep him from bringing the dark side out, and then he decides not to at the last minute. Kylo sees it, and then he basically creates Kylo Ren. That's just the way you can really put it, right? So, I know fans are mad about that, but let's face it. This isn't the first time that Luke has made a crazy, impulsive, fear-based decision In these movies, I mean, fans are acting like this is the first time Luke's done something stupid. And I know that he's older and maybe wiser and should know better. But, I mean, look at what he's gone through in his life. I mean, almost every movie, Luke has made a decision based on impulse and fear that I guess you could say has kind of worked out for him and kind of worked out for the best in the end, you know, especially in Empire and Return of the Jedi when he made those decisions. I guess they kind of worked out. But, I mean, he did lose a hand because of one of them, right? That's not the best. He almost died in Empire by taking on Darth Vader in the first place and probably would have if Vader wasn't trying to get him to join him, right? So try going to kill Kylo was maybe a stupid, impulsive decision that was going to work out until Kylo woke up and saw him and until Luke decided that that wasn't really the way to go. Now, you could argue until the Porgs come home as to whether or not that was a good or bad decision, right? But that is what happened. He lied to Ray about it, and I guess he decides he has to try and make amends for this. So, you know, he he does the whole thing where he force projects himself, an astral projection, if you will, and does the and does battle kind of with Kylo Ren and kind of distracts him long enough so everybody can get out that the astral tr- projecting projecting thing loved it i know that there's been debate is it badass or was it just terrible i thought it was awesome and and when he was taking those blaster shots i'm thinking okay yeah he's Luke Skywalker but you walk right through that like a boss How do you do that? Even if you are the most powerful Jedi ever. Love the fact that that's where it was. It was a good swerve. And maybe people are mad because you didn't see that coming. It was a power that wasn't really known in the Force. And again, if you're going to give anybody a new power in the Force, it's got to be Luke, right? I mean, come on. It just worked out. And, you know, maybe... 
him creating Kylo is something that he should get a little bit more heat for. And I know that you're saying, no, that's Luke would never do that. Okay. It's, it all depends on how you view Luke. Do you view him realistically or do you view him as the hero? And when you when you look at heroes in movies, you tend to see them as not flawed, right? Even every every hero has some sort of flaw. And if this is a character that you grew up loving, it's hard to see the flaws in these characters because they're the icons that we put up on the pedestal, right? And for a lot of fans, and justifiably so in Star Wars, that is Luke Skywalker. And to see him make a questionable decision like that, and this is the first time it's very much an outward and obviously questionable decision that Luke makes, right? And you're thinking, that's stupid. Why would he do that? Luke would never do that. He kind of has a history of that. You just maybe haven't noticed it before or didn't want to notice it. So as far as the beef with Luke Skywalker goes, I actually like the way that they played it and brought his flaws more to the forefront and the fact that he's still flawed and still learning himself even at such a an older age. And even Yoda had to come back and in this in this movie and kind of poked fun at that fact like ah oh, i've missed you skywalker still so much to learn sort of thing and i'm like yes there there it is right there from master yoda himself another one of those characters that maybe we put up on a pedestal but even master yoda is kind of telling star wars fans to chill in that moment knowing how star wars fans were going to react about luke saying that you know there's certain things about him that he still needs to learn. And maybe he never really got a chance to learn everything because every one of his mentors died before they had a chance to teach him. Let's just face facts there. He didn't really get a whole lot of training at all. And he was the one that was most connected to the Force. He was the Jedi Master, right? Basically by birthright, not because he was trained to be. So you have to think about that aspect too. It's not like Luke was trained to be the greatest Jedi Master ever. He was going back to finish his training when Yoda died and never really was able to finish it. And then he was training the next generation before the whole Kylo thing happened. So you have to understand that maybe Luke's not going to be the best teacher because he was never really taught himself. These are all things that need to be considered before you break apart Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. So I liked that they did that with Luke and in his final moment, he gets his redemption, right? That's exactly what he was looking for. And I feel like a lot of characters in this movie got their redemption. As a matter of fact, I think it was the redemption of Kylo Ren a little bit in this movie. Sure, he still had his spoiled brat moments. But, I mean, come on. The guy kills Supreme Leader Snoke in a very clever and badass way. The interaction with he and Rey was very, very uncomfortable, right? I mean, it was just super uncomfortable in the beginning. And then you kind of grow to see how they can understand each other, I guess. But it's at the same time, not have the same view on how things are going, especially when they were facing off on Snoke's ship after the whole thing went down. And he's like, join me. And she clearly doesn't want to do it. And then you see that anger in his eyes. But you also see a shift in perspective from Kylo Ren, right? The fact that he's now going to take this by the throat and become the leader that the four, that the First Order needs him to be kind of thing with Snoke dying. And he has wanted this moment this entire time. But again, in the end, it's the same old Kylo, the hubris that gets him every time. And we see that happen. But has that not happened to other Star Wars villains in the past? 
I venture to say it has. So again, we're getting a little bit of similar beats here. And you have to understand that this is a different trilogy, different characters, in different angles that this is coming from, but leading to a lot of similar conclusions. And I don't mind that either. I know that's been a criticism too, that we're following a lot of the same beats, but we're getting there with a different melody, if you understand what I mean. Like if your favorite songs, a lot of your favorite songs over the course of time, not to go on a tangent here, have had the same exact rhythmic pattern, but give it to you in a different way so you'll enjoy it in a different manner. Think about it that way. This movie does follow beats of the previous movies, but they're doing it in a different way with different characters to try and get you to enjoy it in another way. So I guess the best way I can say it is you got to let go of what you knew and try and enjoy what is new. And I think that that's one of the main things that I'm seeing when I'm talking about when I'm talking about Star Wars and I'm seeing all this stuff on social media and online and it's like guys you've got to try and enjoy it for what it is. We got a great trilogy with 4, 5 and 6. 1, 2 and 3, I mean you could say that's maybe one of the worst trilogies of all time. Some people did enjoy it though. And you if you can't enjoy it for what it is, Maybe it's a guilty pleasure of yours and you don't want to admit it because you don't want your nerd friends to dig a giant hole and throw you in the Sarlacc pit, okay? I understand that. You never want to admit that you liked anything from the prequels, okay? And now we have this trilogy, which is yet to be rounded out. So you have to try and enjoy this for what it is. And maybe you're shy about that because of how 1, 2, and 3 went. Well, don't be. I mean, this is clearly not... One, two, and three. And I think that as far as characters go, we're doing a little bit better. But I want to get a little bit back on track here. And I want to talk about some of the ladies of Star Wars. First of all, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about Leia. I thought that Carrie Fisher in her last performance as Princess Leia was amazing. I love the fact that she kind of floated her way back onto the ship and showed that, yes, she does still have the Force. She does still have that power to live beyond her years. I thought that that was a really cool moment. Say what you will about it. I loved it, but I want to move on to maybe the most contentious character of this entire movie, and that is Rose Tico. Yep, Kelly Marie Tran's character that we were introduced to not as early on in this movie as we probably should have been, actually. We saw her sister sacrifice herself for the greater good with the bomber there in the beginning, and I thought that that was a very key moment that could have been capitalized on a little bit better. Because we do see Rose upset about it, and that's when she bumps into Finn. We do see that, but we don't see her react to it in the moment. If we could have seen her react to that in some way, maybe she's on the bridge, maybe she's fixing something or whatever because she says she's around pipes, she never sees people ever. If she could have somehow heard that like on somebody's comm, maybe it would be on Finn's comm, right? She hears about that on Finn's comm or somebody's comm device. And that's how she finds out and we get to see it in the moment. If we saw it in the moment, I feel like that would have been a little bit better for Rose as far as later on in the movie. But we see how she reacts with Finn and it's a little bit of fangirlish stuff, right? And I mean, I guess it was, you could say maybe it was cute in the beginning. I don't know. But then as you see her character moving forward and you see that she's much more than the job she's been given in the resistance, right? You know, she says she works on pipes the entire time, but you see that she's got skills and she's finally getting a chance to show them 
because she bumped into Finn and Finn realizes, hey, she's smart. She might be able to get us on this ship. And we see them take that event adventure to Canto Bight to try and find the code breaker. Now, we kind of see the onion get peeled very, very slowly with Rose. But connected to that and the whole Canto Bight thing, which I didn't mind because I thought that it was the, you know, movies tend to do the, let's see how the other half lives kind of thing, right? Well, in this case, the other half was the rich people. And I think that the cultural significance of this was, was that they're trying to show that the profits of war work both ways for the good guys and the bad guys. And I think that's what Cantobite did, is it brought that cultural significance to the forefront. And this is a political argument you could have until you're blue in the face, right? You know, the benefits of war, somebody's making that money and somebody's profiting off of all this devastation, killing and destruction. And they show you that it works both ways. I think that's one thing that Ryan Johnson did very, very beautifully. And not as subtly as you might think is bringing that discussion to the forefront. And then I'm not really seeing a whole lot of discussion on that. And I think that Rose's character was a big part of that when she had that scene where she was talking about how her people were enslaved and the people on her planet and stuff like that. And they're for, and they're forced to work in these conditions while the rich get richer and her people stay the way that they are and are forced into servitude kind of thing. I thought that that was a really, really interesting part that's not really getting enough credits. And I thought that she played that very, very well. The only problem I kind of had with the Rose character was the decision that she makes the basically T-bone Finn, okay? When he's trying to take down the First Order, he's not going to let them win, right? So he's going to sacrifice himself. I'll get more to that in a second. He's going to sacrifice himself, right, for the greater good, which we saw a lot in this movie. And then she T-bones him, and she t- says the whole thing, you know, we do what we do for the people that we love, and we see that connection made between her and Finn. And I didn't feel it as much as I think I probably should have. And I think it's because while they developed a good chemistry between Rose and Finn, I don't think they developed it enough. And I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a Stockholm Syndrome kind of thing. I know that he didn't kidnap her, okay? But they were in prison together. They spent a lot of forced time together. And maybe it's a projection on her part, right, uh, of those feelings. So maybe that's not really how she feels. That's just how she thinks she feels. But that's... Again, another discussion for another time, but I thought that was rushed into a little bit. I think they could have set the stage for that a little bit more or maybe have Finn reveal those feelings after that happens and and we find out that maybe she's dying or you think she's dying. So then Finn makes that declaration. Maybe it doesn't matter who makes that declaration, but I think that in that moment it kind of mattered because I don't think they fleshed that out enough to be able to make that matter in that moment. So I guess in that respect... I didn't really get a whole lot from from Rose in in that respect, but I I think that this is a character that could have been done a little bit better. It's not Kelly Marie Tran's fault, and I think that she definitely had some really cool moments in the movie, but I mean, maybe could have been written and executed a little bit better. I don't think she was quite as badass as they would have wanted her to come across. And I think the same could kind of be said for Laura Dern's character, Vice Admiral Holda, because she's kind of, you know, when Leia's out of commission, she's forced into command. And my first thought, honestly, was, who the hell is this? Right? You just kind of throw her in the mix there. Not that Poe should have been granted that or anybody that we quote-unquote knew from this new trilogy. 
should have been given that honor, but you just kind of throw her in there and she kind of ends up being the foil for Poe, who's being a, I mean, if you want to talk about being a rebel, Poe is being that rebel. I mean, this is Han Solo to the nth degree, right? Basically doing whatever the hell he wants and, and, you know, kind of marching by the beat of his own drum. I mean, Han never went this rogue. I'm sorry. He just, you never did. Poe went really rogue, but I want to finish talking about Laura Dern for a second before I move on to Poe. She did something in this movie that I've always wondered was never done in movies like Star Wars before. I always wanted, you know, why why has nobody ever just put a ship into hyperspace and just driven it through the biggest ship that the other guys had and just taken it out of commission? Somebody finally does this, and it's a really emotional moment. Probably would have been more emotional if we set more of a tone for Vice Admiral Holdo and knew more about her before this happened. We know that her and Leia have a history and we get to see that kind of play out just a little bit when she decides to stay behind on the ship because somebody's got to pilot the ship and they do have a moment there, but that wasn't enough really for me to create that emotional attachment to Vice Admiral Holdo. Like I think would have been really well served when she decides to make that choice and make that sacrifice. While I thought it was a great moment, while I thought cutting all audio on that and watching the ship just drive through the other ship was a brilliant move again by director Ryan Johnson. I thought that was an amazing moment there. But emotionally, her death didn't, again, mean as much as I think it could have if we had a little bit more character development on Vice Admiral Holdo. And now, don't get me wrong with these last two, This is me nitpicking a little bit, okay? It's not that I didn't like these characters. It's me nitpicking a little bit. So that's the only thing there. And the the back and forth with her and Poe, I thought was great. I thought that they played off of each other really, really well. I thought the way that she would push him. And I thought her being a little bit of like the boss that doesn't let the employees know what's going on with Poe. I actually liked that, and I think that did do a lot for her, but that actually kind of maybe made her me like her less a little bit, and I guess that might have been the point because you want to prop Poe up in that moment, but it made me like her a little less, and it made that moment and the choice that she made a little less for me. Uh, maybe it shouldn't have. I don't know, but it kind of did a little bit, and another character, and I'm going to do this one really quickly, that I'm really disappointed is Captain Phasma. Sure, again, she had her moments. Gwendolyn Christie wasn't her fault at all. This is a character that when she dies, I assume she dies, by the way. Let's not say that she dies for sure. I think she's pretty dead, though. Let's just face that fact here. If she comes back in the next movie, I wouldn't be shocked. But I think she's pretty damn dead at this point. So when we see her battle with Finn, and even before that, when she's kind of given the kill order, you're just saying, you're feeling saying, yes! Captain Phasma is here. She's a badass. I love this character. And they kill her. Just like that. This character, for two movies, didn't get her chance to get off the ground at all. I mean, it, I mean the, the different Stormtrooper suit. I mean, everything was built up to have Captain Phasma be this amazingly huge character. And I feel like they gave that honor more to General Hux. Than they did to Phasma. I was thinking that Phasma was going to be in more of the General Hawks role. And that just never really materialized. And again, 
Not a knock on General Hux, character that I love to hate. Don't get me wrong there at all. I just feel like Phasma was a character that never got her chance to get her due that she probably should have had. You could maybe say the same for Supreme Looter Snoke, although I thought he was a, a major badass in this movie for the time that we saw him. I think that she could have played a much different, much bigger role in this movie and the next one, and it just never happened. And it kind of bums me out. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it doesn't matter because there's so many other good characters in this movie. Maybe that doesn't matter, but I would have liked to see more from her. And, you know, the whole thing with Ray and Luke going to Ray now and her training, that was interesting. Seeing Ray as kind of the screw up, which was not what we saw in the last movie. It was funny. It was interesting. And this movie overall was a lot more funny than I expected. This The moment at the very beginning where Poe and General Hawks are doing that whole thing where Poe's pretending he's on hold and can't hear him sort of thing to stall. I thought that was hilarious. Loved that moment. I loved the little bits of humor in this movie. I laughed at shirtless Kylo. Not going to lie. Don't know why that was funny for me, but it really, really was. I, I laughed at that. So th- this movie had more humor than I expected, and it wasn't forced either. That was the other thing. They could have easily forced it in there, and it just felt so natural, and it felt unexpected. And I think that's the thing that I loved about it the most. I didn't expect any humor at all, and I got some. And and that's you know kind of true to form for the Star Wars movies, right? You're getting bits of humor where you don't expect them. I hated Benicio Del Toro's character for turning on them in that moment, but I saw it coming. That's just a random thought on my part as we as we head towards the tail end of this review. I thought that Poe should have probably been arrested and thrown away in the, the key thrown away. And if Leia didn't like him as much as she did, she probably would have because, I mean, look at everything. I mean, he defied everywhere you could defy in order. He defied it. Everything he could do to go rogue... He did. And many times in this one movie, it was to their detriment. And a lot of people died because of reckless decisions that Poe decided to make on his own. And again, not a first for the Star Wars franchise, by the way. But Poe really went out of his way to do this. And it kind of made me like him less. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I know that they said that, you know, this one's trouble. I like him a lot and stuff like that. And I know Leia likes him, but I was like, dude, come on. Aren't you, you, maybe you need to dial it down a notch and bring some people in. And clearly his leadership skills need some work. I'm just going to say that right now. And again, nothing that Oscar Isaac's doing. It's, and, and maybe this is the way the character's supposed to be written. Maybe this is how I'm supposed to react because this is how I feel about Poe after seeing The Last Jedi is that he needs some work. He needs some direction, and he needs to realize that he needs some direction. It's like, I love your spirit, kid, but you've got to kind of screw your head back on a little straighter because what you're doing right now is not working for you. But, you know, I love the moment where Ray and Finn come back together. They're towards the end. Loved that. I, I love that we've now got Kylo in the role of, I want to kill everyone. I am the leader. If you question me, I will force choke you and throw you into the wall. Love that. He's finally taking hold of that Vader role. And it was in taking down his mentor that he got to that point. So now we're going to see they've finally built up this epic Kylo and Ray battle 
for this last movie that I think is going to pay huge dividends thanks to what Ryan Johnson did. And we'll wrap this up a little bit by saying that there was a clear disconnect between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, I thought. I would have liked to see the consistency of having the same director do back-to-back movies. Of course, going back to J.J. Abrams now. The tone felt different for both movies. Obviously, the storyline was was very, very different. It was very bleak, but at the same time, it had to be bleak, I think. And I think this this is maybe one of the reasons why Ryan Johnson was given the honor because it this movie had to be exactly what it was. Okay, it had to be a dire time for the resistance. It had to be the power of the First Order. But then you have that last second getaway that gives you what Star Wars movies are supposed to give you, and that is hope. And hope was a huge theme of this movie. And there's no question about that at all. Whether you loved it or you hated it, it did bring you the theme of hope. It had some cultural significance to it, stuff that we could talk about in our times and our lives that we have going on right now. Maybe that was a little bit subtle. There wasn't a whole lot of fan service as far as throwing characters that we loved in there. I mean, I know Admiral Akbar was there. I loved that and a couple of others that we recognize from the original trilogies, and but they wasn't forced. It was just there. You either appreciated it or you didn't, and you moved on from it. It wasn't just shoved down your throat. Nothing in this movie was. I liked the way that they played Luke as more of a flawed character than this larger-than-life hero, even though he had that moment at the end. And everybody played their role so, so well in this movie. It's one of the reasons why, hey, Love me or hate me, I'm not signing your petition, and I liked The Last Jedi. So I'm going to give this seven shirtless Kylos out of ten. That is my spoiler-filled review of Star Wars The Last Jedi. More reviews up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Simone Missick from Marvel's Luke Cage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Since Nerd News is virtually non-existent this week, other than the first look at the Han Solo movie, and how much can you really tell from a picture? So we're not going to get into that. already talked some Star Wars. How about we give a double dose of geek entertainment this week? My spoiler-filled review of Bright from Netflix, of course, starring Will Smith as as Officer Daryl Ward, who was forced to ride with an orc office officer, the first ever, who is Nick Jacoby, who's played by Joel Edgerton. Now, I will say this. This is one of those stories where the worlds of fantasy and our modern world kind of collide. And to me, the concept here was one of my favorite parts of this and one of the things that I was looking forward to the most. And David Ayer being involved, I liked Suicide Squad. No, a lot of people didn't. I caught a lot of flack for that. And that's okay. I don't apologize for liking Suicide Squad. But so I had high hopes for this movie. And basically, it's based around how Will Smith's character, Officer Ward, does not want to ride with the orc. And the orcs are the bad guys in this in this movie, or at least that's what the world seems to perceive them as. You know, something that happened 2,000 years ago. And humans and pretty much everybody else have never forgiven the orcs for this. So the orcs are basically the look down upon in society. They're the thugs. They're the degenerates. They're the ones that you always think are causing the problems, except for Nick Jacoby, who, and he says in this movie, the character does, that all he ever wanted to do when he was younger was be a cop. He's an unblooded orc, doesn't get respect from his own people, 
So he decides to follow his own path and decide to try and be a police officer. So the dynamic between he and Will Smith's character is very, very awkward for most of this movie. I mean, to, for lack of a better way to describe it, Officer Ward, Will Smith's character, is a real dick the entire movie, not just to his partner, but to pretty much everybody. And Will Smith kind of plays that role in some of his movies anyway. But this was a very... It was an off-putting version of it, almost. I mean, I did not care for most of the movie what happened to the Officer Ward character. And things kind of dragged on as they kind of tried to explain the class system and how the elves are the rich people and there's different sections of the city. You know, like the elves have their own territory and, you know, the orcs tend to hang out in certain places and things like that. But things really dragged on until... You kind of find out there's this trust trust issue between Ward and Jacoby with an incident where Ward gets shot and they're not sure that the story's right. And they're basically, everyone's looking for any reason they can to get Jacoby off the force. And then suddenly we get thrown into a storyline where you have this magic wand involved and you have Leia and you have Tika who are... We don't know if they're bright, both brights or not. We know that Leia is one. We find out that Tika is one later on, and I'll get to that in just a second. And basically, they're trying to bring out this dark evil, this dark presence that's going to come and destroy the world, which tried before, and the magic wand stopped the first, the first time, and the assumption is that the magic wand will once again stop this dark evil force. But here's the problem with this entire thing. You never really get there. And and this concept, I think, was completely lost. This was a concept that was so cool and could have been done so much better than it was. And yeah, once you find out there's a wand and the wand grants wishes, everybody wants it. The gangsters want it. The orcs want it. The cops want it. And you see Ward have to take down some of his own officers because they were going to kill him. And they were going to kill Jacoby, make it look like it was Jacoby's fault. And then they finally get rid of Jacoby because there's an there's like an orc inclusion society or something like that that's making the police officers and making society integrate orcs more into their world almost like an affirmative action kind of deal it seemed like that's where they're kind of going with it so it just seemed like the balancing of i guess you could call it racism and i guess you could call it the class system of society to me, it just didn't play off. It really, really didn't. I mean, the elves are supposed to be the rich people, and you see one of the federal agents that's the, that's the magic agent. He's an elf. and It's just the class system didn't pay off to me. It didn't feel like there was that really good description and that really good vibe of telling a story that involves a class system. And I tended to care more about Jacoby than I did about Ward or almost anybody else. In this, although I will say that Tika, who is played by Lucy Fry, was a very interesting character. She was this fragile character. You weren't really sure how powerful or not powerful she was. You really weren't sure that she would even survive the first five minutes of everything that was going on. Bullets are flying everywhere. And all she can keep saying is, you know, protect me, protect the wand. She clearly doesn't want the wand to get in the wrong hands for the reasons that I just mentioned. She doesn't want this dark evil to come about. And she was a member of this group called the Inferni who were supposed to do this. And she decided it wasn't a good idea, decides to go rogue against her own people. And she is basically the traitor of the group, but you feel for her, you feel for Jacoby. And then that's pretty much it. And it's in this instance, and it's basically becomes like a 
diehard type scenario where it's Ward and Jacoby just trying not to die the entire movie as everybody tries to get their hands on this wand and them trying to protect it. Now, one of the problems I had with this movie was that Tika, at one point, you find out she's a bright and she says, you know, she's just started a training. That's why she wasn't able to help when they were being shot at by gangsters and all this other stuff. Yet, when they needed her, she was pretty powerful then. She was a pretty big badass then, like when she saves Jacoby from the orcs, when the orcs kill him and throw him in the pit kind of thing. She saves him right there at the end of the movie. And when we see the battle with Leia and everything that's going on there, and she saves them then, and she blows her to blow, blows Leia to bits and all this other stuff. It's like, well, you sure, you sure learned on the job quick there, didn't you? So it just seems like it certainly could have been made easier. She just either didn't want to make the effort or didn't think she could. So she's like, ah, screw it. I'm not going to do this, which she probably should have. So, but I, and I, the other thing I had a problem with was that Leia's group or Layla, whatever you want to call her, they, I, I heard it both ways. Sorry. So either way you want to call her, her group of Inferni just wiped out everyone and everything every time they came in contact with an opposition, whether it be the cops, the feds, the Barrio gang. I mean, whatever it was, they wiped them out. Yet when it's Will Smith, regular cop with no skills, and Jacoby, who's an orc, and orcs are strong, and they've got some fighting skills, so I understood how, how Jacoby was able to hold his own, and Tika... They have trouble against them for whatever reason. It's like a really good sports team going up against a team you that has been in the last place all season and is awful. And for some reason, this this last place team looks like world beaters against the best team in the league. It just didn't make sense that they were able to hold their own so well against this group of Inferni. It made no sense to me at all. So that was a little bit off-putting. I will say, though, I didn't hate the movie. I was just hoping that it would be a little bit more interesting and they would have taken the concept and maybe put it in a different direction. It's like the movie couldn't decide what it wanted to be. Did it want it to be a commentary on the class systems and races of the world and how everybody should be treated the same way and this is what happens when you don't? Or is it a story about a magic wand that everybody wants to get their hands on and everybody wants to do it for the wrong reasons? And these two people are trying to keep it safe. And then, of course, you've got Will Smith, who's able to survive holding the magic wand. And maybe he's a bright, maybe he isn't kind of thing. Because if you're supposedly if you touch the wand and you're not a bright, you're going to blow yourself to bits. And that actually happened at least once in this movie. Yet Will Smith grabs it and he's, you know, he's ready to die. He's going to sacrifice himself sort of thing. He grabs it and he doesn't die. That wasn't really explained either. So there was just a lot of stuff in this movie that wasn't explained you're left with a lot of questions throughout almost the entire movie, and then you get all the explanations in a flood at the end. Kind of a pet peeve of mine, so that was a little bit aggravating too. I wanted to like this movie the entire time that I was watching it, and I had seen some of the reviews and saw how negative that they were, and that kind of bummed me out, but I wanted to like this movie more than I actually did, and I think that that made it more frustrating. Another thing was that Will Smith calls his wife, and says, get, you know, get our daughter, get yourself, and get out of town right now. That never comes back. I know it's a trope using the family to get at that, to get at the people that, that you want to, to get them to give, give you what you want. I understand that that's a trope. At the same time, you would have thought that at least, you know, 
the family would have had a hard time getting out of town. Maybe you don't want to add a third storyline either. I, I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe you don't want to bog it down more than you already did. It just seemed like that was a throwaway moment. That was another moment where you could have added a little bit more of a humanistic edge to this Daryl Ward character because he clearly cares about his family. But then you make them an afterthought so quickly that, that it doesn't really matter. So there's no redeeming qualities for Officer Ward's character at all. And yeah, he does eventually stick up for his partner. He does what he needs to do for his partner. So he acts like he doesn't care about him when he really does. I get that. And maybe that makes him a good dude. I don't know. But he was just such a dick the entire movie that it got to the point where that didn't matter to me anymore. It didn't matter that he kind of redeemed himself because he was such a dick the entire movie that it, it, it just didn't matter to me anymore. So for Bright, I, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was very much just all right for me. So I'm going to give this five nuisance fairies out of 10 and hope that if this concept is ever done again, it's just done a little bit better. It's going to do it for my spoiler field review of Bright on Netflix. Up next, going to dive into the world of Krypton from sci-fi and our final set of interviews from San Diego Comic-Con 2017. The cast and producers of Krypton, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is David Harris from Superdog. Hi, you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We found out a couple of weeks ago that Krypton is finally going to be coming to Sci-Fi on in March of 2018. And when I was at San Diego Comic-Con 2017, got a chance to sit down with the producers and the star of Krypton. Matter of fact, let's start off with Damian Kindler. And I asked him about the freedom that they might have because they're going so far back in Superman's history. Do you feel like because you're going so far back in the House of L that you have more freedom, especially with fans, to kind of do your own thing and give us something that's maybe more like your vision instead of feeling like you have to stay akin to any kind of canon at all? Um, it's a good question. They're all good questions. Uh, that one is like a yes and no, and that's not cagey. Yes, because there's, though there's a lot, you know, Krypton, Son of Krypton, you know, there's been a lot of canon and stuff. We do also have a lot of freedom to world build by going back that far before Jor-El. Um, so, so, and that's wonderful. But the no part is that, look, there's also a lot of canon. You know, this is this is not an IP that you can suddenly turn into like a, you know, a rapey Metallica, you know, soundtrack, you know, death blood sport kind of thing. Because that's not what the S means. It's about hope and aspiration and truth and justice and, and just, you know, good stuff. So you walk this line of saying, look, how do we... We've all grown up with this IP. We're ready for it to take a nice, big, deep, rounded leap forward. You know, we're, we're living in like that post-Frank Miller, Alan Moore world where we can't, we can't make it broad anymore, but we have to also be respectful for the lineage. So I guess that's the yes and the no. It's the challenge of like, let's world build, let's tell something deeper and cooler, but make sure that it really is honest to the, the feeling that we want to evoke. A follow-up question by someone else quickly revealed that we might not know everything we think we do about Krypton. Yeah, we think we know the ending. It's like, hey man, it blows up, why should I care? The first thing we're doing is really trying to set the table that if you think you know the ending of Krypton, you don't. In the first episode, something happens that it comes from our present into the past, their past, that makes the stakes relevant, changes the timeline, changes history, and suddenly we will within the first episode, you are like, oh, we don't know how this ends. 
and I think that's a very exciting thing for us as creators and a really exciting thing for fans. After that very interesting bit of information, it was executive producer Cameron Welsh's turn, and when someone asked him about villains that were going to be appearing on the show, he talked about that, but also gave more information on what we just heard. Without getting into this, uh, the, the specifics of the villains, what I'll say is there's a as a way to kind of get into the show, and I think one of the challenges I think a lot of prequels face is you know the the, the sense that well we know how this story ends, Krypton is going to blow up, and that's the end. So why do I invest in that? Well, what we're doing with our show, and it speaks to the villains, is that there's a conspiracy to where where some villains from present day Earth, 2017, have. Uh, traveled back in time to Krypton of 200 years ago to try and prevent Superman's birth. So um, very quickly the show becomes, it's no longer about the events of the past, it's about, the states are about the here and now and about you know, the greatest hero on earth in the universe and, and will, he, will he be born. Uh, and so it just, it, very, very early on it becomes a show where anything can happen. No, and at the you know at the forefront of all of that, uh, the villains who are kind of behind this conspiracy, and, and you know I think for obvious reasons I, I can't go into any more detail on in the specific, specifics of who they are, but it's a it's a very cool way to get into the into the show, and it, and it just kind of I think upends people's expectations of what the series is, is going to be. So it seems like there's a couple of different things going on after we heard that, right? So I asked Cameron about that. So you almost have two different stories going on there. You have that present day aspect, but you also have this path of redemption mm -hmm. type aspect from the House of Bell. How long, for the redemption type story, how long do you kind of feel like you want to let that breathe before you sort of hit that climactic moment? Do you want to let that breathe a little bit, or do you want to let that kind of stretch out? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think I think that's the that's the that's the challenge of the show is knowing you know how far to play any of those things and, and you know and I think it's 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 we have a we have a, a you know a pretty well thought out plan for how that should should play um, and I think I think we want to you know we've got that great buy-in but we, ultimately we want people to invest in the characters of the show so so it's the character story it's their personal emo emotional character driven stories that I think is what people will end up coming back for you know so um, as much as as we all love uh, the big the big swings and the big um, you know uh, wild crazy plot moments uh, they only work when we care about the characters you know and, and so um, yeah so it's about really expanding those characters and building because a lot of the audience are going to be unfamiliar with, with you know a lot of these characters so really growing them is, is a, a, an important part next up the star of Krypton Cameron Koff and the first question right after you sat down seemed pretty obvious to me so this is going to be exciting for you right entering the world of Superman albeit 200 years in the past what's Man, it been like so far it's thrilling it's thrilling and before I was ever an actor I was just a dude who loved movies and comic books so it's it's epic for me to be here my character Segel is the eventual um, grandfather of Superman. Um, he is the scion of the once great House of El, um, that was once at the very top of Kryptonian society and, and through no fault of his own has been um, stripped of its rank and sent to the very bottom and essentially is left for dead. Um, so when we meet him he's been living, he's been growing up in a very very harsh environment and um, where he has to struggle to survive and so the elements of, of you know, this legacy that's out there and, and this sense of 
you know, whatever it was that his family st stood for, he's sort of very isolated from it. He's very separate from it. Um, what's real to him and the stakes for him is just making sure he can get through another day. And that's where we meet him at the beginning of our story. We know Krypton's not all about the House of El, so somebody asked what other significant relationships Segal would have in Krypton. In Krypton, we have some incredible uh, characters, and as well as other houses, and and uh, one of them is is with Lighter Zod, um, and we have a fantastic actor, uh, Georgina Campbell, who's playing that role, and she's she's epic in it. And um, so, within Krypton, there is a very precise society, and there's a guild system, and she's within the military guild. She's a soldier, and Seg is a hustler, you know, from from the streets, and. And uh, it should be oil and water, and especially in a society that is leaning on authoritarian, they're very precise ideas about who you are, what you can do, and what you can stand for. And so for that to happen is an act of rebellion, and uh, that is probably the most central relationship for, for Seg in, in, in the show as we, as we start off. This has been one of the biggest questions from fans. So somebody asked it to star Cameron Cuff. Is Krypton connected to anything in the DC TV or film universe? DC is so great in letting people grow and develop their own paths. And we don't want to answer that question just yet. And, and we want to we want to forge our own path. That's, that's the most important thing for us now and tell the best story we can whilst paying homage to the things that have come out before and the things that are coming out now. And um, I can tell you that there will be some incredible characters that you would be familiar with uh, who you might not expect to see on Krypton. So I'll be completely honest. Walking into that press room at San Diego Comic-Con 2017, I had no idea what to expect from Krypton. This was before the panel had even happened. There wasn't a whole lot of news about the show. And then we get the bombshell dropped that the concept is being completely changed. You're going to have Adam Strange involved. This is going to be a little bit more of a time travel thing. But the core aspect was still the same, trying to keep Segal alive and preserve Clark Kent, Kal-El, Superman, coming to Earth in the destruction of Krypton. It was just very interesting, and everybody was really surprised it was in the room to hear that that was what was going to be happening. So, And this is a show that's been shrouded in mystery from the beginning. We finally know the show will premiere in March of 2018. No specific date has been given for that yet, but we finally have at least gotten a look at the show a little bit. I sort of like what they're going to be doing, and I think that this is a very, very cool choice for them to make, and we find out that Brainiac might be involved. We might even get Hawkman involved in the show as well. So I'm all in for this. Let's do this. It just seemed like, you know, you're worried before this might be a boring concept. I think that they've ratcheted that up tenfold. I'm super excited to find out where Krypton's going to go. Maybe we get a little bit of the history of the L family. We still get a little bit of that Game of Thrones type of vibe, but we also get a little bit of a time travel adventure with Adam Strange involved as well. And this is a way to bring Adam Strange into the DC TV universe that makes complete sense. He's an underused character as it is, and I can't wait to see what's going to be happening with Krypton when it debuts next year. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We have plenty more interviews lined up for you in 2018. Thank you so much for making 2017 our best year ever. I can't say thank you enough to you, the listeners and the fans, for sticking with the show all of these weeks for helping us have the success on this show that we do. And I promise you even better stuff coming in 2018. You will hear some new voices on the show in 2018 from time to time as well, not just in interviews, but in other things as well. Going to make the show bigger and better for you because that's, that's what I want. I want the show to get bigger and better 
and be one of the best shows there, and you're going to help make that happen, and I do appreciate that. You can always follow online at downandnerdypodcast.com. That's where you can find us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter, in on Instagram, find out everything that's going on with all the shows, even past shows as well. If you missed one from this past year, just scroll through the list there, and you'll find what you're looking for. And for the final time in 2017, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.